As you know by now, Cruise Through HTX seeks to share the stories of the individuals, businesses, and organizations that make the greater Houston area great. And this next guest is the epitome of this podcast's mission. His name is Gabriel Najera. Born with no arms and feet that are upside down, he shares his inspiring journey of overcoming challenges and changing mindsets. He talks about the importance of not making excuses and instead finding solutions to achieving goals. You are thoroughly going to enjoy this episode, including the story of how he learned to drive and how he got his driver's license. Overall, his message is one of empowerment and the belief that if he can do it, anyone can. Catch up with Gabriel at ifican-youcan.com. And if you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed putting it together for you, please share with your family and friends and subscribe to the show. Thanks. Hi, I'm Ed Sheeran. This is Bruno Mars. Hey, it's Katy Perry. This is your man Flo Rida with Freddie Cruz. This is AJ Mitchell with Freddie Cruz. Freddie Cruz. Freddie Cruz. Let you go pick Mr. 305 and you already know what it is. My name is Freddie and it's time to cruise through HTX. I want to begin the conversation with a video I saw of yours on Instagram. It is where you pick up a weight with your toes and fling it into a water and you're at the beach. That was a Frisbee. A Frisbee. Okay. That was a Frisbee. <laughs> okay. I thought it was a weight. I'm like, oh my God, don't hit somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was hoping that when it came back, we didn't hit anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that because you are doing all these things that the average person does and that maybe somebody who sees you is like, oh, you couldn't throw a Frisbee, but you don't have that mindset. You do everything we do. Your motto is, if I can do it, you can do it. That's right. So talk about that. Well, actually, speaking of Frisbees, I was invited one day to a party. It was a backyard party. This guy had a you know, nice-sized uh, residence, and he in his backyard, he had a big old swimming pool, and he had uh, even a little small lake where you could fish. And they decided to play this game that uh, you toss a small size frisbee and try to get it to land in these little baskets and everybody got a different you know frisbee and when they came up to me you know they were like well we can throw it for you I was like what do you mean throw it for me <laughs> excuse me like, just give me the frisbee <laughs> <laughs> and you know I took the frisbee of course with my foot and they were like well, how are you going to throw it I said could you stand aside? <laughs> You're in my way. <laughs> Everybody was throwing theirs, and I threw mine, and I was the one that I didn't. I didn't hit the the basket, and nobody else did. But I was the one that came closest to it. And everybody's like, "Oh!" <laughs> and from there, they let me play the rest of the game. <laughs> How long did it take for you to te- to train yourself to do that with your toes? Well, as long as it took you to do it with your hands. Really? Okay, so you're 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 that you've got that much um, eye to foot coordination that it's just second nature, like riding a bike, as if the mind adapts to whatever the situation is. Just like people who are blind and people who are deaf, the mind adapts to whatever you know the situation is because the mind is always in survival mode. You know that's your number one basic instinct is survival. So the mind is set to always look for a way to do things. 
It's whenever we get into the logic part that our logic later sometimes takes over and makes us lazy and say, no, nah, I don't want to do it. Not because I can't, just because I don't want to. But people will use the excuse, oh, I can't, I can't. When really what they mean is, I don't want to, you know, so I'm not going to do it. But no, the mind adapts to whatever the situation is. So in my case, not having no arms, you know, my mind says, my foot, my feet, they're, they're my hands. And that's as far back as you can remember being a little boy and yeah. just being able to do that. I mean, yeah, just naturally my mind says, okay, you need to pick that up, drive with your feet. Wow. I love that. But going back to um, not being able to versus not wanting to and therefore making an excuse that, oh, well, yeah, you can't. But in reality, you really don't want to. How do you convince people as a coach? How do you convince people to <clears throat> to see to see otherwise that it real that it, they really can if they just apply themselves? Well, first of all, you know, when I'm sitting in front of somebody and they're trying to tell me I can't, I just kind of give them that look, you know, with my eyes and say, "Look, you know, you're not talking to a, a newbie here. You know, you're talking to a pro. So come on, let's get down to it and tell me why you really don't want to do it." <laughs> And so then they start opening up about, you know, well, you know, it's not really what I want, or it's not, you know, it's not in my religion or whatever, you know. And I'm like, okay, fine. You can give me whatever excuse you want, but just admit you don't want to. Okay. Once we get past that, then we can move on to better things like, you know, okay, so what are you going to do with your life? And it's as easy as just calling them out on their, I guess, for lack of a better term, BS, saying, exactly. well, you, you really don't want to. Well, you know, life is like a hand of poker, you know, you play your cards. And if you know how to play your cards, you know how to win. <laughs> and, I, and I guess m- most people that you speak with um, don't realize that it's not because they can't. It's They don't realize that they just don't want to, I guess. Right. I'd say about 90% of the people I've talked to, they know, you know. Oh, so they know that they don't want to and they're just they making an excuse. Okay. They, it's just an excuse, you know. Oh, I can't, you know. It's but, like, okay, why not? But what about people who who... Think who legitimately think that they can't, but then maybe I guess subliminally speaking, they they just really they're just making an excuse and they just don't realize that they're making an excuse. Yeah, well, there are cases like, for instance, this one lady that you know she's in her forties and she has a fear, you know, which is where we come into you know what your imagination is, what kind of movie your imagination is going to play in your mind. But she has this fear of driving, you know. And I'm like, hey, what's your problem? You know, I can drive. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's amazing because you know, she's I, I can't drive. I get I, I get panic. Well, then we start looking into okay, what's the movie in your mind? You know, what, what's playing there? You know, are you replaying? You know, uh, a movie you saw at the theater where you know you, you see so many crashes and so therefore then your mind starts blocking. You know, why you're thinking like that. Um, sometimes I try to practice a little bit of hypnosis with people, uh, and I'm not talking. The deep hypnosis where, you know, you send people back in time or anything like that. But just, you know, some light hypnosis or saying, hey, look, you know, let's put that to rest, you know, and let's let's move on. Let's get past that. Uh, and that, seem, that seems to work sometimes, most of the time. If you're watching a movie and you're sitting there crying your, you know, your eyes out, you're under hypnosis, you know. That movie's got you hypnotized, and they've got into your emotions, and they've got into your deep level of you know, your subconscious to where they're making you cry. That's hypnosis, you know, and that's pretty much like the same thing I do in my uh, in my conferences. You know, as I'm talking to people, people become actually hypnotized with me, 
and watching me and then and then I, I one of the things that uh, is made my uh, speeches, my conferences successful is that I, I can take people on a roller coaster. You know, I can make them laugh and then I can make them cry and then make them laugh again and make them cry. And people like that because it makes them feel good. It's the perfect slogan for what you do. If I can do it, you can do it. So using these uh, storytelling uh, tools, uh, make them laugh, make them cry, go back and forth, the, the seesaw that you can help people realize that they can do this, they can hypnotize people with what they do as well, almost. I don't really want to say hypnotize. I like to say that we can be an example. You know. An example or maybe influence, use their influence, influence. for a positive let, way. Let, let, let's be an influence, let's be an example of, of what can be done and say, that, hey, look, you know, why not? You know, if it's for good, let's do it. Let's go back to when you were born in Mexico and something when I had something you said when I had seen you speak at the Katie Fulshear Chamber meeting, it was that you were given a very short lifespan, right? And then right. they realized that you were outliving what the doctor said. And they're like, okay. And the parents were like, well, we need to do with him. We need to, I guess, stimulate his brain, help him learn. Well, I, what I really said in the conference is that uh, the day I was born, as I came out of my mother's womb, you know, they realized that, you know, hey, hey, I didn't come with all the, you know, everything in the package, you know, that was supposed to be there. You know, there's no arms, and uh, my legs were turned upside down. And uh, they, you know, their first response, and we're talking back in the 60s, you know, when handicapped kids just weren't quite accepted. Right. So therefore, the mindset was that I was born with no life, you know. Because, I mean, no, nobody comes out talking or screaming, you know. It's not until they slap you in the butt that, you know, you start screaming. Well, because they saw me and all of a sudden thought, you know, I was dead. And then I started crying and they, okay, well, he's not dead, but, you know, uh, you know, he doesn't have all the package. So there's no telling if there's anything else missing inside the body that may prevent him from living, you know, a very long life. So, which is why they say, well, he may not live more than maybe a couple of hours or a couple of days. Uh, because back then, they really didn't have much experience, especially when you're talking about a third world country, you know. And in Mexico back then, you know, third world, second world, whatever you want to call it, but not as advanced in technology and in human behavior as uh, we would say in the United States. So... Then as I got, you know, as I started growing, you know, I got past, you know, the two weeks and the two months. And they were like, okay, well, he looks like he's going to be around for a while. So now let's change the focus here and let's start thinking, you know, what can he do or what what are the possibilities of him being able to actually have a life? And so my parents then started, you know, to think about, okay, so maybe as he gets older, we can try to put him in a school and maybe try to, you know, get him going in the educational system. And they did. And that's how you ended up in Port Arthur. And I want to go back to your life as a, as a boy and growing up and in the sixties and in the seventies and eighties, I imagine as well. Um, it was just, this was, I guess, Handicapped people were thought of as 
there was a lot of othering, which I think othering is a, a term that was that's was made popular over the past few years, it seems. But there was a lot of othering that was happening. So when did you when did you start to see yourself as not another, but rather one of everybody else? Just you just happen to not have arms. I don't think I've ever saw myself as another. I love that. Rather, I've always thought that hey, you know. If he's doing it or she's doing it, you know, why why can't I, you know? Oh, okay, well, maybe because it's too tall and I can't reach it. Okay, that's fine. I can live with that. But if it's something that it looks like I can do, then by all means, you know, I, I go for it. And I've never thought of myself as being handicapped or being different. But rather, you know, I, my mind has always been the mindset of looking for a solution and not dwelling on the problem. Uh, you just mentioned that, you know, I grew up in Port Arthur, Texas, which uh, was uh, the, the big difference between living in Mexico and living in the, in the U.S. Uh, was in Mexico. Mexico, as I just mentioned, you know, wasn't a country prepared for handicapped people, so therefore they kind of always set them aside. You know, they would send them off to live in, like, the grandparents' ranch or farm or whatever, or some aunt and uncles, you know, long you know, a place where they could hide them because they didn't really have the, um, I want to say the education, but as well as probably they didn't have another example of someone that they could look up to and say, okay, well, that guy didn't have arms and he did it. You know, I'm sure that maybe mine can. But rather it was always, you know, oh, well, let's just hide them. So therefore there was never no example. They didn't have an adult version of you. Probably, yes, an adult version or a successful adult version of me. Mm-hmm. And so, but however, my dad, he was a uh, biochemical engineer for a large company in Mexico at the time. And he got to travel uh, uh, all over the world where they would, you know, the company would send him on business. And so my dad, you know, he had a, a exposure to the U.S. mentality and Canadian mentality and a couple of, you know, European countries where, you know, the mentality was not to hide the handicapped person, but rather to, you know, focus on their strengths and go from going that. And it was that through my dad's travels that he ran across a school in the U.S., as you mentioned, in Port Arthur, Texas, that was a school for handicapped kids. And that school was not... Your typical uh, place where people would just drop their kids off and you know forget about them. Or there was an actual school where we were actually part of the school district, the local, the local school district, and they had the same curriculums as they did in other schools. The only difference was we were all you know there was some type of handicap or disability or whatever you want to call it. Some were in wheelchairs. Most of them were in wheelchairs. Some were paraplegic. Some were, you know, uh, muscular dystrophy, uh, muscular sclerosis, or they were blind or deaf. So they always had to adapt the curriculum to whatever the special need of the students, but always focusing on the fact that everyone could learn. You know, um, I think the only type of kids that were not accepted at the school was if their level of uh, mentality was, you know, so low that they really thought that they, they were not teachable, then they were not accepted. But otherwise, all types of handicaps were accepted. And through my dad's travel, he came across that school, and he was like, okay, this is the place. So, you know, they 
uh, took me to see the school and said, you know, hey, this is, you know, your opportunity here. Because they had taken me previously to some other schools in Mexico City that kept turning me down and turning me down because the schools were thought that they would have to spend too much individual one-on-one time with me for me to be able to learn that they didn't have the manpower or let's just say they didn't really want to. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so therefore, well, my only option was to find a place that would, and this was the place in Port Arthur. How old were you when you when you moved down here to or up here rather from Mexico to Port Arthur? <laughs> I was six years old. Six years old. And so, what was your what was your earliest memory? Your earliest favorite memory of like, wow, you know, I guess you wouldn't a six year old wouldn't say, oh, these are my people. But um, what was your favorite memory of of being in that school when you first got there? Well, when I first got there, uh, growing up in Mexico City because I was there, you know, the first five years of my life, I have an older brother. He's a year older than me. And so the first four years of my life until he turned five was, you know, playing with my brother, like, you know, most households. And so, you know, I would always watch him, you know, uh, as he would play with, you know, certain toys. You know, I would say, hey, I can play with that too. I want to play, I want to play, I want to play. And so, you know, we played together. But then, it's, you know, he's turned five and he started going to school. I was like, hey, I want to go to school too. You know, I want to do like my brother. Of course, like I said a while ago, you always follow examples, you know. And so my brother was my example at that time, and that he was going to school, and then all of a sudden I saw that he was carrying these books, and he was carrying these colors, and he was, you know, having friends, and, and all of a sudden you know, he was making a life that I wanted to do. But when I turned five, my parents started taking me to some different schools, and when I wasn't being accepted, I was like, well, wait a minute, you know, how come my brother got accepted and I didn't? You know, I want to go to school too. So when this opportunity came up at the school in Port Arthur, and they, my parents took me there to go see it, and I was like, you mean I can go to school too? And they're like, yeah, this is cool. And, and I can have my own books and my own colors and, and play with, you know, the rest of the kids here. Yeah, I was like, Hey, yeah, let's go for it. You know, I never thought twice about being there, even though, you know, it was like a boarding school and I lived there with the other kids while my parents and my family stayed in Mexico. And everybody always asked me a big question, where didn't you feel bad, you know, being away from your family? Because I lived there nine months out of the year and then I would go back to Mexico for the Christmas vacation and the summer uh, vacation. And I was like, well, you know, I, 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 get, I still get to go home for, you know, the summer and Christmas, you know, especially Christmas because, you know, I know Santa Claus, you know, goes to my house. So, you know, <laughs> I get to be there when Santa Claus shows up. Yeah. So, hey, yeah, I don't mind, you know, living away from it. Besides, you know, the rest of the kids there, you eventually became a family. It seems like you had a college ed- college experience but as a little boy i mean you went away for the entire school year and you're back for christmas vacation and summer i guess you can re- associate that with uh, being in college because and for me being in college was the same thing you know i was living at the college dorms and still going to school and then go home for the holidays but what, I, I think it was harder for my parents or, or rather it was harder for my mom than mm-hmm. it was for me uh i, I there's a teacher that uh, retired from that school, and I still keep in touch with her. 
and she, uh, I, we met up about a year or two ago one day, and we were sitting there talking, and she was like, and she told me the story. She says, I'll never forget your mother's face the day, the first day when they left you at the school. Mm. She said, I'll never forget her. You know, she was so sad, and she was just, you know, bawling her head off, you know, and crying because, you know, she was leaving you there. You know, you were going to be there by yourself. And she said, I'll never forget, you know, that, you know, you started to walk away, and your mom was, you know, wanting to go back and run towards you, or, or she stood there and waited to see if you were going to turn around and, and come back, and you didn't. You just kept on walking, you know. <laughs> you were you were going to go off and do do your own thing. Party time, school time, and, and yeah. And that's when your mother realized that hey, you know, this might not be such a bad idea. Oh, I, I can't help but think that it all has to do with the environment in which you grew up in. Well, we're all victims of our environment. Yeah, uh, some people may argue that, and they're like, "Well, no, I grew up, you know, in the poor neighborhood, but I, you know, made something of myself." And yeah, I mean, there, we do have exceptions, you know, and people can grow out of their environments and stuff and become, you know, something better than their environment. But unfortunately, I would say more than ninety percent of the human race, you know, is a victim of their environment. And if you're raised in a good environment, then you're probably going to have, you know, a much better life than if you're raised in an environment that's not so good. Um, yes, my parents were educated enough. You know, my mom was a school teacher, as a matter of fact. And my dad was, like I said, a biochemical engineer. So they pretty much had, you know, knowledge of the fact that, hey, you know, this kid, he, he may not have arm, but he's got a brain. And so let's make the best of, you know, what he's got. And they did, you know, they set me up in this environment uh, at the school where they realized that all the kids there, not just me, but all the kids there had to, something against, you know, their odds that they had to overcome. And so the mentality at the school was, hey, you know, just do it. You know, don't fall down, but do it. Another story about my mom at the one day when after you know I'd been there already, you know, a couple of years. Uh, my mom and dad were dropping me off, and they were standing at the doorway with the uh, school director. The school director was standing there talking to them, and my mom used to tell me the story that she never she never forgot that one day there was another kid on crutches. Was, you know, just coming down the hallway, walking, you know, and all of a sudden the kid falls down. And my mom's first instinct was to want to go run to help the kid, but the, the director grabbed my mom's arm, and she grabbed her by the arm and said, no, just wait. And the, the director, you know, she she didn't play of, you know, treating the kid like a victim, but rather she just said, wait. And that she stood there watching to make sure that the kid was all right, but the kid had to learn to get up. And she, my mom said that was another lesson that she, you know, will never forget that experience of you don't always run to try to solve people's problems, but rather you wait and see how they're going to solve the problem. You know, because in life, that's what you do. You fall down and you get back up. You know, everybody usually says, you know, if you fall off the horse, get back on it again, you know. And that was the case that uh, my parents learned about me also, is that, you know, they couldn't always be there. But rather, it was probably the best that they left me so that my mother wouldn't always want to be there to, you know, do everything for me. 
And that is something I was thinking about just last night, Gabriel. And that is the struggle of a parent to want to be there, to sort of be that helicopter. You know, everyone bags on helicopter parents, right? And, you know, always there carrying the backpack for the kid as they're walking to school in the rain, right? And it's a, it, it seems like the line is much more finer than we think where we want to be there, we want to help, but at the same time, we also have to introduce struggle and let our kids sort of figure out how to get up, as you were saying, how to get up when they fall down. This kid with the crutches, he's got to figure it out. Exactly. I mean, you call them struggles. I mean, it's, it's not just struggles, but, you know, sometimes we also use the word mistakes. Mistakes. Sometimes we use the word failures. and Sometimes yeah. we use, you know, different, you know, tags that we can use. But it's all about learning to do it yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and not becoming dependent on anybody, but rather just, you know, hey, it's a learning lesson. You know, you fall down, you learn to get up. You make mistakes, so what? You, you know, learn from them. And you move on because, you know, time doesn't stop for anybody. So it's not going to stop for you to try to sit there and, you know, and wonder what are you going to do and, you know, and feel sorry or anything like that. Time moves on and life keeps moving on and we just got to keep moving on with it. You have such a positive outlook on everything, Gabriel. I'm wondering, has there been in recent memory uh, a time when you thought, wow, this just isn't going to work? Maybe in business personal life, anything? Well, of course. I mean, I'm still human. (laughs) I mean, your mindset is superhuman. I mean, it's just, it radiates. Well, like I said, I I grew up, you know, with the environment around me of, hey, let's do it. You know, whatever it takes, let's do it. Let's figure out a way to do it. Uh, starting back to, to my childhood, like I told you, I grew up my first five years with my older brother, uh, teaching, uh, playing with toys and stuff like that, and trying to figure out, you know, hey, how can I also play with the toys? Did you want to get that? No, no, no I'm going to turn it off. <laughs> Sorry about that. Didn't, it's all good. I forgot to turn it off when I got out of the car. All good. But, uh, no, yeah, my, my older brother was like, you know, hey, you know, you want to play with the cars? Just grab one. And so it was always my life and my challenge to let's figure out how I can also do it. And that's where my mindset began to be positive and not thinking, oh, I can't do it. I'm just going to wait for somebody else to do it for me. But rather, hey, those toys look cool. I want to play with those toys too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there, my mind, I think, uh, began to start working in what you call positive in positive mode of saying, hey, you know, I can do it. I can do it. And so now, and everything I do right now, everything, it's always, okay, so uh, maybe I shouldn't go that way because, you know, there's a small roadblock, but I'm sure there's another way around it, so let's go find that other way and see what happens. And you drove here in the rain. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I didn't get wet. I was in the car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People say, oh, it's raining. Okay, so and? <laughs> you're not going to walk there, are you? <laughs> no, but I might get wet. Okay, so you're not made of sugar, are you? <laughs> you're not going to melt, so what's the big deal? You know, you bathe in the water, you know, be glad that it's raining. That way you know you got enough water to take a bath with. How long did it take for you to learn how to drive? Um, well, you know, driving is, is, is my, my, my driving is kind of a little story that I always like to 
tell people in my conferences, even though sometimes I don't have enough time uh, to tell the story. But, you know, ever since I was 12 years old or so, or 10, 12 years old, I remember, you know, being able to ride in the car with people as a passenger. And I always used to look over to the people driving. And it's like, you know, there's, there's no big science to driving, okay? All you do is you push one pedal to, to make it go, and you push another pedal to stop. That's it. Come on. There's no big signs. Hey, I can drive. You know, one day I'm, one day I'm going to drive too. And people used to tell me, ah, oh, man, you're crazy. You know, how, how are you going to be able to drive? You know, you can't reach the pedals. You know, your legs are too short. And you need one hand for the, you know, brake. I mean, one foot for the brake, one foot for the gas. And you need two good hands to grab onto the steering wheel. And, you know, I, and they used to tell me that, you know, it's going to be impossible for me to be able to drive. You know, it's just no, it's not impossible. I mean, you know, it's, there's no, there's no big signs. And I was like, I, yeah, I, I can drive, I can drive. And <clears throat> so I think from that time, you know, in my observations, that was my learning. You know, my learning period of riding in the car with someone. And so by the time that um, when I when I graduated from college and the, I, I moved out. And, and where I, I said I moved into the world, that you know I needed transportation, so I started looking around. Okay, what is what is it going to take? Well, first I, I got to have a car. Okay, so I don't have any money. Uh, you know, how can I get a car here? And I, I were driving around. I mean, riding around one day with a friend of mine. His car was uh, needing repairs, and we drove to this uh, uh, junkyard to go. You know, pick a part from it. And, stuff like that and, I, and there was this car there for $500 and I was like does it run and they're like yeah it runs so you know I called my dad and hey can I borrow $500 <laughs> he's like what for and I, well, I want to buy a car he said come on you know what are you going to do with the car and, you know you're you going to pay somebody to drive and I said no no, no I'm not going to pay anybody out. that's going to be my car and my dad, are you serious? And I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, $500? That was a lot of money back in the day, too. Well, yeah, it was a lot of money. Yeah. It's like probably saying, you know, $1,000 today, you yeah, know, or $1,200, yeah. you know, which you can buy a little junkie for $1,200, you know. <laughs> back then, you know, this car was, it was a 77 Monte Carlo. Oh, okay. And that was, you know, those long-ass, big old <laughs> boats, yeah. you know. That, My grandpa Freddie had one. <laughs> well, you know, it, they were sitting out there in front, and once I opened the door, I realized why, you know, it was only $500. It didn't have a floorboard. You know, it was all <laughs> rusted out. And I was like, hey, but this is perfect. You know, I just throw a piece of carpet on there, and that's it, you know. <laughs> but as long as it runs, that's all I need, you know. And so... I bought it, and my, you know, my dad sent me the money. I bought it, and uh, this friend of mine that I was going to college with, um, he was a, a mechanic. You know, he was always out there in, in, in college working on his car. And so I asked him, I said, hey, you think you can help me fix this car for me to drive? And he's like, you really think you can do it? And I said, come on, you know me. And he said, yeah, I'm not, that's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> yeah, nothing ever stops you. And I was like, so, okay, so why is this going to be any different? And he's like, well, okay, if you think you can do it, you know, I'll, I'll help you. You know, just tell me what, what you want to do with it. And ever since, you know, like I said, when I was 12 years old, I always said, all I need to do is be able to reach the gas and the brake. That's all I need. And then I can probably recline the seat back far enough so that I can raise my other leg, and grab the steering wheel. 
And that's it. That's where my modification is on my vehicle. It has been ever since. You know, my friend helped me, you know, we picked up you know, some scrap metal pieces here and there and made this rod that connects underneath the steering column to the gas and the brake. So you push it to the left with, uh, with my right foot. I push it to the left with the brake and push it to the right with the gas. That's it. And then with the other foot, I turn the steering wheel. I mean, nothing difficult, nothing complicated. Um, I, I, I did, uh, to add to the story, I did go to um, this government agency at first when I was trying to figure out what I needed to drive. And when you say government agency, not the DPS? Not the DPS. Okay. No, there's a government agency called the Texas Rehabilitation Commission, hmm. which I don't know if it still exists or not, but back in those days, there was an agency that would help handicapped people to get whatever they needed to be able to have a life. For some, it meant paying them for the school, for some special training or adaptive equipment. And that was one of the things that they used to pay for was adaptive vehicles for people who needed, you know. So I went to them as I was recommended by somebody to go to them, and I went to them, and they said, yeah, well, uh, you think you could drive? And I said, yeah, I can drive. All I need is to be able to reach the gas in the brake, and, you know, and, and I would describe what it was that I needed, and they're like, well, it sounds like, you know, that's too simple. I was like, no, it's not too simple. It's all I need. And like, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to set you up. We're going to send you to uh, the Corps of Engineers at Texas A&M University, where they have some of the best engineers there. We're going to set you up a meeting with the, with the Corps of Engineers. There's a group of about, you know, 12 people. Uh, and they're going to, you know, look at you and decide where to, what kind of modification they think would be best. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure, no problem. Set me up. So they did. And I went out to Texas A&M one day, and, uh, you know, I walked in this room, and it was like, you know, walking into, you know, the 12 disciples there, you know, fixing the side of my life for me. <laughs> and uh, they took one look at me, and they're like, uh, okay, you look like you got mobility. You, you know, yeah, we could probably do something for you. Stating and, the obvious. And so they you know, drew this... Uh, uh, on this chalkboard, you know, this diagram for all these things that they wanted, you know, to to do to the car. <laughs> they wanted to uh, put uh, some motors on the, uh, some uh, some small motors on the gas and the brake pedal. So I would, all I have to do is just barely touch them with a button and that would activate the gas or another button would activate the brake. And then they wanted to drop the steering wheel down to the floor so that I could, you know, with the other foot reach on the floorboard down there to, and then put another set of backup motors in the, inside the trunk in case the motors in the front would fail. There was a backup system that would, you know, handle the motors in the front. And by the time I looked at the drawing on the board, I was like, Dang, all of that? And they're like, yeah, this is probably what, uh, this is what we're going to recommend to the Texas Rehab Commission so that if you want to drive, you know, this is what you're going to need. I was like, come on. I said, you know, I looked at the diagram guy, guy and I said, so where am I supposed to sit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and they just, you know, so what? They think you got a better, you think you got a better idea or what? You know, you think you're smarter than us? Oh, no. It's like, no, I don't think I'm smarter than you. I said, but I don't need all that. I said, that looks like that has a lot of possibility of failure. The more complicated you make it, the more likely you can have failure. Mm-hmm. And I said, so what's your bright idea? I said, like, well, all I need is a rod that comes up to my foot that's hooked up somehow underneath, you know, to the gas and the brake push it one way for the gas and the other. 
And I'm like, oh, no, 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 that's too simple. That That is a big chance of failure because it's too simple. You know, you don't have a backup system. And it's like, don't need one. <laughs> and uh, well, we're sorry, but, you know, if you're going to go with, you know, if you want to be able to drive, you're going to have to go with our, our recommendations or else, you know, you're not going to get a license. Like, I'm not going to get a license? I said, no, because you're, you're going to have to have something approved by us in order for DPS to give you a license. I was like, well, I'll tell you what, thank you very much for your time, but uh, uh, I think I'm going to have to pass and maybe look somewhere else. <laughs> and so I walked out of there, and I was all disappointed, you know, because, oh, man, you know, I'm not going to be able to drive now because they're not going to want to give me a license. You know, oh, man, what do I do, you know? And I still, didn't, I still hadn't given up on my idea of, you know, of how I wanted to modify the car, and that's when I turned to my friend, and I asked him, I said, what does it take, what do you, what, what do you have to do to get a license? And they're like, well, you just have to read the manual, go take the drive, the reading test, and then, then go do a driving test, and that's it. I was like, that's all? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, I asked him, I said, you think it'd be any different for me? And it's like, well, you never know. You never know until you try. So, sure enough, I went down there and took the reading test. <clears throat> he helped me buy, modify the car. And I said, so what do I do next? He said, well, just drive down there to the uh, DPS office and uh, the officers are going to get in the car with you, give you some instructions, and if you do everything right, you pass the test. If not, you get three chances. I'm like, okay, well, let's go. He's like, no. You go. <laughs> I'm not getting in the car with you. <laughs> I thought, like, oh, come on. And, uh, by this time, I had already driven her in a, in a parking lot. You know, we drove around for about half an hour, you know. And he's like, okay, if you feel like you're ready, just go on down there. So I went down and drove to the, my first time driving on the streets, you know, down, drove down to the DPS office. And uh, this lady walks out, this lady officer walks out of the office and walks up to my car, you know, when it was my turn. She opens the door, gets in the car, puts her seatbelt on, and then turns around and looks at me, and she's like, you're going to drive? I was like, yes, ma'am. She said, okay, do you have insurance? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I had already taken out the insurance, you know. She's like, you think you can drive? And I said, sure, no problem. And I said, but if I can't, then I guess I'm, I'll fail the test, right? She said, yeah, you're right. You get three tries, so let's go. So we drove around, and she told me, you know, how to Go here and there, turn, stop, blah, 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 blah. Came back to the office, and she's like, okay, one last thing you got to do. And I was like, what's that? She said, you see the little flags over there? She said, you got to go in parallel park. And I looked at the, the, the flags, and I looked at the distance between the two flags, and I was like, you got to be kidding. Said, you want me to put this big ass boat between those two little flags that were made for a little Volkswagen? <laughs> I said, "Yep, you got to fit in there, and you can't touch the flags, or else you you won't pass. You failed the entire the entire test." I was like, "All right, let's go." So I you know, pulled up and. My friend had already, where well, I already practiced parallel parking because he did tell me that I was going to have to parallel park. So you already knew how to do this? Right, I had practiced okay, yeah, so in the parking practice. lot, but it wasn't between those two little flags, you know. It was between two, you know, two spaces, mm-hmm. which were 
I, I, as I recall, they were much bigger than the space between those two. Flags. Almost like they were setting you up for failure. Well, yeah, or at least it looked that way. It looked that way, yeah. you know. But then again, you know, it, it wasn't. You know, the car fit yeah. in there perfect. You know, I, nice. I didn't have any problem. I pulled it and put it in that space. And once I put it in that space, you know, the officer looked at me and said, are you finished? So whenever you finish, he said, just put it in the park. So I kicked it in the park, and she's like, all right. Well, she said, I don't know how you did it, but you passed. I was like, cool, yeah. I said, does that mean I get my license? She says, yeah, you did everything just fine, and I don't see any problem with you driving. You know, I never mentioned or asked any questions about you know, the adaptive you know, equipment that I had or anything. I just said, that's all. She says, yes, that's it. You'll get your license in the mail. I was like, thank you very much. Have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> and I was it. You know, started driving ever since. And now I've driven all over this country, all over the U.S. I've driven all over Mexico. I've driven down to South America, you know, down to Guatemala and uh, Honduras and never had, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say never had any problems. I've had a couple of wrecks, you know, because, hey, you know, probability of someone having a wreck, especially living in a city like Houston, you know, you, they say that the odds are one every five years. And uh, my first few years, uh, I was running the odds there. But actually, I haven't had any wrecks in, uh, I think, about 10 or 12 years. What about speeding tickets? Oh, well, you know, <laughs> can't help those. <laughs> How many miles over the speeding limit was your last ticket? Actually, I haven't gotten a ticket in probably about the same 10 or 12 years. But okay. back back when I was younger, let's race. Yeah, they'd like to run. So I think, you know, my fastest speeding ticket was maybe doing 16 or 40, you know, something like that. You know, cause that's, I was not that <laughs> nah, that's not that bad. That's not that bad, you know. Uh, I, on the highway, I was like, back when the speed limit was 55. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to remember those days, but yeah, all the highways, you know, speed limit was 55, and yeah, I got pulled over doing 75, you know, one day, 75 and 55. It's like, come on, man, you know, nobody drives 55. <laughs> but, and, and then, you know, I've gotten pulled over a couple of times, and the officer just looks at me and says, and they're like, you're, you're, you drive with your feet? And I was like, yeah, I drive with my feet. Like, oh, cool, man. I tell you what, just take it slow. You know, I'm not going to give you a ticket. Just, you know. Nice. I was like, thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> Have a good day. Ah, <laughs> oh, I love it. You know, but you know what's so cool? Uh, speaking of 75 and 55 mile per hour speed limits, uh, out in the sticks, um, out in the sticks, there are areas with the 75 mile per hour speed limit. You got to like that. Oh, I definitely. I should even have to go that far out. You just yeah. go outside the city limits here in Houston, and yeah. it goes up to 70. And then if you go uh, a stretch outside, like uh, past San Antonio, from San Antonio to El Paso, it's like uh, a speed limit is 80. 80? Okay, I've never seen 80. I've seen a 75, not 80. Wow. It's 80. It's 80. You go past San Antonio, where there's you know, nothing but you know, mm-hmm. dune sands out there, and speed limit is actually 80, which I, I, I really I don't do 80. Um, I don't do 80 because I notice that, you know, nowadays and I'm older, I'm more concerned with the gas mileage. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason. <laughs> That's the only reason. Oh, man. That's great. Um, Gabriel, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. I've got one more question for you, sir. And that would be your words of encouragement for somebody who's just, they're going, they're going through some rough times, whether it's an illness, whether it's job loss, a demotion, a divorce, or what have you, but they're in a really dark spot in their life. 
And what would be your, what would be some encouraging words that you would share with them? Well, one of the things that I've learned in life is that everything is mental. Everything is in your mind and only in your mind. I've studied those and done a little bit of digging in some uh, what's called quantum physics and, you know, where they study the, everything down to the molecule in, in, in the quantum world and in that they kind of bring in everything, you know, science and religion and human nature and psychology. It's just a mixture of everything. But what it all boils down to is that it's all in the mind, and the quantum physics says that if it's not in your mind, then it doesn't exist. So when you put that into practice, the only thing that exists is what you want it, is what you want it to exist. And I'm not saying that you look at a problem and you say, okay, it's not real, so I'm like, so, so it's not real. And no, that's not what I mean. Is that everything is what you want to make it to be. If you want to make a big deal out of it, yeah, it's going to be a big deal. If you don't want to make a big deal, it's not a big deal. It's all in your mind and what kind of thoughts you put into it, how much energy you put into it. Uh, because everything is energy. That's something else in quantum physics and science. You know, science teaches that everything exists in physics. You know, everything is nothing but energy, and energy vibrates in different frequencies, and whatever frequency you choose to vibrate in is what you're going to live. You want to live in a high frequency, you're going to be in a high frequency. You want to live in a low frequency, you're going to be in a low frequency. So, putting aside all that, not to bore anybody with the physics and the laws of physics, but it is what you want it to be, okay? You want it to be a big deal, you want to be, create a big drama, Hey, go for it. You know, it's your life. It's your drama. You know, you're the one that's going to suffer with it. You want to make something better out of your life? Make something better out of your life. Think of it as you know, just an opportunity and take advantage of, uh, of the opportunity. Life is full of opportunities. I always tell people in my conferences that the only difference between me and them, meaning you know, with people with their normal bodies, the only difference between me and them is that I see an opportunity and I take it and I make the best of it. Whereas most people, you know, they let all these opportunities pass by them. And I always tell them, if you don't take, a, if you don't take advantage of the opportunity, someone else will. And you're going to be sitting, you know, on the sidelines. And that's another thing I've learned, you know, and I tell people in my coaching is, you know, who do you want to be? Do you want to be the player on the field or do you want to be the spectator that's just up there screaming your lungs out thinking that you're going to, you know, change the world because you're screaming your lungs out when you're not? You're just standing there looking like a fool, you know, screaming your lungs out. Be the player on the field. Be the guy that's throwing the ball. Be the guy that's catching the, the opportunities, the ball, and run. Run with the ball. Do what you want to do, but do your best at whatever it is that you want to do. And if I can do it, you can do it. Beautiful. The website, y'all. Check out Gabriel Najera's website, ifican-youcan.com. Ifican-youcan.com. He's got a couple of books. You can watch his videos. You can learn more about his coaching programs as well. Thank you so much, sir, for taking the time to be a part of the podcast. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for your audience listening. If they stuck around this long to listen to the ending of it, <laughs> and also I'm, you know, of course, being from Mexico, fully bilingual. 
So, para la gente que está escuchando, si quieren buscar mi página web, si yo puedo, tú puedes.com. Gabriel Najera. Gabriel Najera. That's N-A-J-E-R-A. How people don't know how to spell the last name, so anyway. Gabriel Najera. Thank you much. It's been a pleasure, and hope to do it again one day.